Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the No Sharding Podcast. And today I have an awesome guest, Justin Drake, who's been uh, working on VDFs, part of the Ethereum Foundation VDF Research Project. So really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So um, I guess you want to like maybe do a brief in- intro of, of uh, who you are and how you got into VDFs. Okay, sure. I mean... I'm Justin Drake. I'm I'm kind of a geek. I studied mathematics, and then I did some programming um, stuff, and then I discovered Bitcoin in 2013 and went down the rabbit hole uh, pretty quickly. Um, I was doing some Bitcoin stuff for a while, but then in 2015, actually no, in 2015 I I started a Bitcoin company, um, which didn't do so well, and then in 2017. I kind of uh, spent most of my time thinking about, um, towards the end of 2017, spent most of my time thinking about Ethereum. And specifically, I've been thinking about Ethereum 2.0. And, you know, one of the big pieces of Ethereum 2.0, as you know, is sharding. Um, And in order to do sharding, you need to do these um, uh, randomly selected uh, committees um, that are kind of statistically representative of a larger pool um, of validators, and you need randomness for that. So I went down the the randomness uh, route and tried to find the you know the best solution possible. And there's there's a few ways to do uh, decentralized randomness, and basically discovered that VDFs is probably the the best way forward for uh, for us um, given our constraints for Ethereum 2.0. In your words, can you describe what a VDF is? Sure, yeah. So it's kind of this really cool cryptographic primitive, which falls under uh, what I call crypto physics. And so crypto physics is cryptography meets meets physics. So we've we've had proof of work, which kind of um, is when cryptography meets energy consumption. And VDFs is a similar thing. yeah, I like to. Um, Go sorry, I, I I like to think of uh, proof of work as entropy, right? It, it's proof of entropy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess. I mean, I like to think about it in terms of like you're proving that you've spent some energy, um, and you do a similar thing for BDS where you prove that you've spent time. So you prove that there's been some time consumed, and that's what we mean by delay. So it's somewhat different to a clock, which will tell you what time it is. So it's I don't see it as a proof of time. Uh, and that's maybe some an area of debate because uh, you're working with proofs of time. I see it as a proof of delay, uh, which is basically saying that a minimum amount of time has gone through, but it could have been more time that has gone through. And yeah, so um, I, I, I like your distinction is that when, when folks like again when i do the explanation people initially think that it's like a clock like a digital dial but instead it's like little pieces of proofs of delay right that kind of make a sand clock or something like that um so I, I really like how you describe that yeah i mean the the basic problem is that different people will have different hardware to do this sequential um, computation which can be efficiently verified you know um, at, at the end by verifying a proof. And 
basically you need to make assumptions about how fast an attacker can go relative to what you can do or what you know commodity hardware can do um so if you're assuming for example that an attacker can can go no more than 10 times faster than your hardware then if you want a guaranteed delay of 1 minute you're going to need to run your hardware for 10 minutes because the 10 minutes could have been compressed down to only 1 minute if it was run on this like super fancy attacker hardware which is 10 times faster than your hardware so uh, I, the way i imagine it right is like it's almost like we have a a mechanical clock right and it's bound by the speed of the actual gears in there and like imagine somebody's trying to run this thing as fast as possible the if they run it too fast, the gears break and the clock stops working. Um, and I hate to use the term clock, but like you're literally like moving electrons through a circuit, right? And as fast as you can and doing and doing state transitions that are cryptographically secure such that nobody can predict them, right? Right. So in addition to sequentiality, you kind of want like unpredictability. I mean, that's kind of the whole point is that you need to do all the sequential work in order to get an output, which is unpredictable. I mean, the reason why I think VDFs are not, you know, good as clocks, like traditional clocks is that, you know, different people will have different hardware and, and, and basically the, the notion of time consumption is kind of subjective. So different people will have, um, different speeds at which time passes in this context. Yeah, it is not like a, a clock that you would rely on for accuracy in terms of making sure that things physically happen at the same time. Um, right. So, but I, I'd argue it, it, you couldn't even use it for um, like sequential ordering. So if... What? Like like we're doing, which is using it as a vector effectively as a Lampard clock. Yeah, I don't think you can use it that way. Um, so, you know, let's say that you have you have two people and you kind of want to order them, right? Like, you want one to do you know ten units of sequential work and the other one to do twenty units of sequential work, and then you kind of wait to see when the outputs come and not, and you know you'd kind of expect the first one to come first after 10 units of sequential work. And then you can say, okay, they, they should you know, produce a block or whatever now. And then you know, a bit later, um, this, this other person can, can produce a block and, and you can, but the problem is that what if the second person has hardware, which is at least twice as fast as the first one, then you know, they can make it look like to the network that, um, you know. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so what we're doing, just to give you like maybe a better explanation, is we're creating a force delay that, on average, works pretty well. And when it doesn't work, the it it's no different than if two blocks are produced at the same time in in any other network, right? So. What, what we're able to do is introduce this force delay to stagger the block producers and an attacker with a faster hardware can censor the previous set 
depending on the speed of their hardware, they can potentially censor some of the previous block producers. Okay, so I guess what you're saying is that the infrastructure that you have is no worse than the status quo. And so in the optimistic case, it's like a strict improvement over the status quo. Exactly. And all, all, of, all of engineering is taking the best case and blood, sweat, and tears and making it the average case, right? <laughs> I mean, that is- we're, we're taking a very similar approach for Ethereum 2.0. So um, we have this, um, this Randall, which is a, a great way, a very simple way to produce randomness, which is biasable. And then we kind of amplify it or enhance it to become unbiasable by combining Randall and VDFs. But in, in, the, in the very worst case where VDS are completely broken, you fall back to Randall. And so in that sense, it's a strict improvement. And there are some you know, worst case scenarios out there where, for example, if the sequentiality assumption is broken for some reason, um, then you still have the security of the underlying Randall. So, so the sequentiality assumption, to me, like when I... I like I, I don't want to say discover this, but I kind of like stumbled on this thing when I was just simply kind of trying to understand proof of work and why it's so slow. And I had, as the legend goes, right? I had like two coffees and a beer, and I was up in four in the morning. And this kind of like hit me like a brick, like that you can use sequentiality of this pre-image resistant function to create a proof of elapsed time. And why that was to me so like mind boggling insane was that um, this is like the era of time, right? There is no mathematical definition of time. <laughs> um, we, we like, we, we can't even prove that there's such a thing as irreversible functions, you know, like, uh, are you familiar with that? Um, vaguely, is it like these, these quantum circuits and stuff like that? Right. So like, if you think of like a computation, like let's say I want to add two numbers, right? I have a register and another register. And let's say these are implemented as atoms, right? These are atomic, like at the, at the physical level, right? When I combine the two, the, the accumulator, right? Holds the now combined state. And if you run this backwards, you get back to the original values, right? There, there's no, there's no proof that we can construct a set of state transitions at the atomic level or mathematical level that you can't reverse backwards uh, outside of quantum mechanics, which I'm not even going to pretend to understand. <laughs> um, I, I know enough to know that I don't understand it. Um, so that means like we, we kind of don't have like a, an idea of what time is, right? Like we don't have a mathematical proof of what time is, but if we have some assumptions about cryptography is such that there's such a thing as pre-image resistance, then using the sequential setup, we have a proof that time exists, right? Because now you have irreversible functions, in, at least in the sense that they're cryptographically strong, right? And you kind of create this vector of in the direction which time moves. And to me, that was like really almost like a, I don't know, it felt like I, I was like, paranoid for like four days that I like discovered something like really important. <laughs> I mean, I think it is pretty important, um, but I think it was possibly, you know, previously discovered. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, 
I couldn't figure out what to search for in the internet to find it, but there have been like super smart folks working on the stuff before, and like RSA locks, I think, are a really good example of it. Yeah, I mean, so going back to the sequentiality stuff, there's if I were to have a more fine grained understanding, there's actually two types of sequentiality. There's like the macro sequentiality, and this is basically saying that. You know, if, for example, if you have a hash chain, like clearly you can't, you know, jump from, you know, hash number one to hash number 1000, like you have to go through the intermediate steps. So you have this nice macro sequentiality. Um, but then there's also this notion of micro sequentiality, which is that within a single hash and a hash chain, like potentially you could build a circuit which is extremely parallel. Um, and that would give you the answer significantly faster than what uh, commodity hardware can do. I mean, like a very extreme example, uh, which doesn't apply to your construction, but um, maybe it will help you understand is if you were to implement a massive lookup table, um, right? Like a lookup table would, you know, as it grows, it consumes like exponential space, but then the, the circuit depth is very, very small. So you're trading off um, very low latency for lots of parallelism. Um, and it's possible well, that- you, well, you still have, lo you're, you're, you're routing to actually go find the values in the lookup table are gonna be logged the size of the table, right? So there's, <laughs> there's no free lunch, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so you need to look at two things. You need to look at yeah. the circuit depth, which is basically the, the the number of transistors in in the critical path, um, and you know each each transistor will you know take a certain amount of time to to to, to compute uh, to 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 flip, um, and then you need to look at the the wire length, uh, which tends to be something more subtle and more difficult to analyze. But yeah, you're right. The, the wire length would also grow exponentially because if you were to fit all the transistors perfectly in space, as in if you were to try and fit them in a three-dimensional ball, you know, if the number of transistors grows exponentially and you take the, the you know, the, the cube root of something exponential, you still get something exponential. Um, and so because the speed of light is limited, then, you know, these, these brute force lookup tables don't work precisely because of, of routing of, of wire length. But, um, you know, it's possible that for SHA-256, there's, there's some circuits which don't have this exponential blow up um, and still have extremely l l low circuit depth. Yeah, like um, if I, like my understanding is that there's no such proof that says that if you have one function that is, has any kind of property like pre-image resistance and you run it sequentially that there isn't a, a circuit that is faster, right? Than running that, that thing sequentially. But it's a, that there's no such proof that we can't like take some, that there isn't the property we can define about any function that says that sequential operations cannot be reduced in size. So even, even if we couldn't use a lookup table, potentially if I have, if I just unroll in hardware five shot to 56s, I might be able to find a shorter path that's now three times faster than the sequence, than the kind of the, the, the trivial, you know, sequential implementation. So, 
actually, it turns out that the, this, I kind of disagree a little bit here. So there was there's a very recent paper uh, from uh, Rotem and, and Segev. Um, it's on vdfresearch.org, if you're interested. And basically what it proves um, is that if you take the, um, the RSA VDF where you're doing repeated squaring uh, inside an RSA group, it proves that basically being able to speed up this repeated squaring is equivalent to factoring the modulus in the uh, RSA group. Um, got it. So, I mean, they've, they've cheated a little bit. So what they've done is that they've taken the RSA group and they have um, what is called the generic ring model. So they, what can you do with, uh, you know, with a, with a number, you can add it and you can multiply it with another number. So you have these two operations, it makes it a ring. And what the generic ring model tell, tells you is that you can do these operations, but you can't look at the exact details of the representations of these elements. So in the case of an RSA group, you're given a point and you, you can't look at, at its bits. You, you can only kind of do these operations plus multiply and, and equality. And in this model, they were able to prove um, that it's equivalent to factoring, which is like the, the best kind of security reduction you, you'd, you'd hope to expect. Um, because if factoring is, is easy, then the, the whole RSA-based class of VDFs um, falls down. I mean, like intuitively to me, it feels like that should apply to any kind of, like if I have some cryptographically hard operation, then if you can optimize it sequential, if you can break it in a sequential setting, then you can break the original one too, right? Or if or if you can speed it up, right? Like the, it's just like my guts say yes, but I know there, I don't, I don't think there's a proof, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like my intuition would say that for your specific construction, which is like a hash chain, um, the answer is yes. I mean, it, especially if you model your hash as a as a random oracle, then I think the proof is pretty trivial. But, um. And you know we 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 often model hashes as random oracles. So yeah, I I, I agree that prove prove proving anything about hashes is, is difficult because it's it's not really the realm of cryptography. It's more like the realm of cryptanalysis, which is more like black magic. But if you are to make these <laughs> kind of um, assumptions, which we do make in practice all the time, then I think the proofs become pretty easy. Um, so you guys have made, like, I think every time I talk to you, you guys have made kind of insane progress on, on building hardware and in terms of design and, and you guys, can you kind of tell me like where you guys are at today, um, with BDFs and, yeah. and uh, actual hardware? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, let me start from... Uh, CPUs and then kind of go down all the way to ASICs. So if you were to run the sequential operation on a CPU, which is basically 2,000-bit modular squaring, um, then it takes roughly 1,000 nanoseconds per iteration. And, and this is already like SIMD optimized? Like, um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, using the GMP library, which is pretty optimized. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and what uh, there's a cool story here because um, Rivest, Shamir, and I think Wagner in 1996 uh, created these RSA time lock puzzles, which you mentioned. Um, and um, Rivest loves puzzles, so you know he had this RSA challenge where. Um, he invited people to try and factor these RSA numbers, but he also had another challenge, which was this time lock puzzle where he encrypted a message to the future. So what does that mean? So he took a message, the plain text, he encrypted it in such a way that you can only decrypt the message after you've done some amount of work. And so he tried to calibrate the amount of work so that the time lock puzzle took 30 years. Um, you know, taking into account the speed up from Moore's law and things like that. Um, and it turns out he got the 30-year estimate kind of right. It actually took 20 years, um, and it was uh, cracked last year. And it was this guy who was basically running the time lock puzzle on his laptop for, for several years um, and, you know, was running at 1,000 nanoseconds per iteration, roughly. So what what we did with the um, the the VDF alliance trying to speed up these operations is that we decided to implement a solution in an FPGA, and we got the the number uh, the, the latency per iteration down to something like sixty nanoseconds or fifty nanoseconds, and we were able to crack the puzzle in three months, uh, and it turns out that. This guy who, who was running uh, on the CPU for several years and us who cracked it in, in three months on an FPGA, we actually cracked the solution roughly at the same time, like, like a couple days difference. It was quite a coincidence. Anyway, there was a whole ceremony at MIT with Ron Rivest. Um, there's a wide article which uh, go, goes through that if you're interested. But um, the next step was basically to do this um, FPGA competition. So we knew that FPGAs could do the, these things pretty damn fast relative to CPUs. Um, but we wanted to understand how much faster we could improve our solution. So we had a $100,000 uh, FPGA competition in collaboration with various folks like AWS, Xilinx, and, and Synopsys, uh, which are like hardware providers. And we actually got it down to, I think, 25 nanoseconds per iteration. Um, which on was, FPGA still? Yes, on FPGAs. Wow. Um, and between... Um, so so, so um, this implementation for RSA modulo, like this is uh, the exponent, modulo exponentiation, right? Yes. And this can be used for RSA accumulators and basically any kind of like RSA-based operation, right? Um, yes, at the first approximation, yes. So what you're doing is it's a very simple module exponentiation, which is basically you're computing x to the power 2 to the power t, where t is some sort of time parameter. And so basically the the way that you would compute this module exponentiation in practice is just you do repeated squaring. If you want to use RSA groups for uh, things like 
accumulators or things like vector commitments or snarks, um, then it turns out you want to do a module exponentiation where the exponent is some sort of random looking number with lots of ones and zeros, as opposed to two to the power t, which has a Got single it. one and lots and lots of zeros. Got it. Got it. See, so yeah, that's kind of a you need a difference. I'm guessing you guys are optimizing for the fact that it's squaring. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the big advantages is that we only need to provide T to the hardware, and then it'll just do the whole thing. In in the if you were to use RSA groups for you know accumulators or snarks or whatever, then suddenly you need to communicate this big random number to the hardware accelerator. And that, that will that could you know create some IO bottlenecks, uh, which which you basically need need to re-architecture things to, to handle the IO. But from a computational standpoint it's it's relatively uh, similar. Oh okay. That's not too bad then. Because that's great. Well like I, I hope okay so you guys are 25 nanoseconds on FPGA. So, yes. so what happened next? So the next step is um, we have some folks uh, at uh, Supranational. So Supranational is a, a startup that started maybe a year or a year and a half ago, um, which was founded by three Intel guys, guys who had been at Intel for 20 years. Um, so they know this, this hardware space um, really well. And they've basically been designing a circuit uh, which does this stuff extremely fast. And they've even collaborated uh, with another one of their colleagues who uh, came up with a new way to do modular exponentiation, which has uh, lower circuit depth as in even faster. So there's innovations both algorithmically and in terms of you know, doing the engineering work for, for the ASIC. And the, the latency that we have today is around two nanoseconds. And this is on a, is this, this already? This is on a 16 nanometer uh, FinFET uh, process. So somewhat advanced, but not like super state-of-the-art advanced. And you guys already taped it out? Like it's already shipped? No. So hardware is extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that we're considering kind of as a, as a way to test you know, that, that what we've been doing is good work is basically to do what's called a shuttle. So when you're building hardware, you have a very high upfront cost to build the so-called masks. So the masks are these things through which you shine the light to basically print out the, the ASICs. And, you know, a mask set, because you have various layers and so you need a set of masks, a mask set will cost millions of dollars, you know, let's say $3 million or you know, maybe $5 million if you have a very advanced nose. Um, and so... So the cost, go, the cost basically goes up the more recent the node is. So like I think 40 nanometers, you can probably get under half a million dollars. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. But you know, for the 16 nanometer uh, stuff, we're talking you know, a few million dollars. And so what, what is done in practice to amortize the, this upfront cost is that you have a mask which is shared between multiple people, and that's called a shuttle. So you only pay, let's say, a quarter of a million or, or half a million dollars. 
and there's like 20 people who are sharing the same mask. Um, so the downside is that you only get you know, very low volume of hardware. You get a few samples, let's say 100 chips. Um, and so it's, not, it's very good to test your assumptions and make sure that um, you have a good design, but it's not good for, for production. And so that's something that we're considering in the, in the medium term. But even before we can think about doing the production run, we, we actually need to solve another really, really big problem, which is the, the RSA modulus. So what is this RSA modulus? We need an, a number, which is the product of two large primes, let's say two primes each of size 1,000 bits, so for a total of 2,000 bits, in such a way that no one knows what is the factorization. And you know, there's various ways you can do that, but the, the most promising way that, that we see to achieve that is to do an MPC, where you have lots of participants that jointly produce this uh, RSA modulus, and the factorization is unknown so long as only one of these participants is acting honestly, meaning that any randomness that they contribute to the RSA MPC will be destroyed. Um, so this is you know, similar in terms of security guarantees to um, the, the kind of trusted setup that you have, for example, for Zcash or for yep. Aztec. Yeah, and this is like a, another kind of <laughs> really complicated problem to pull off. Um, I think like I remember one of your suggestions was that you should also throw in like dead cryptographers public keys, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, so one thing so, that you can do is that you can run multiple VDFs in parallel. And if only one of the VDFs is sound, then the whole thing is sound. Um, and so one thing that we could do is that we could run um, you know, one VDF where the RSA modulus, for example, was generated by Ron Rivest um, to, for this RSA challenge that I was talking about. And we could have one VDF also in parallel, well, in parallel to the, this first one that comes from the, the, the RSA uh, MPC. And that's just a possibility. But right now, the, the current plan is, is just to go with one um, from the RSA MPC. And the reason is that we want to burn the modulus in the ASIC. So the advantage of having a, a circuit which is custom designed for this one modulus is that you can have a circuit which is faster and consumes less power and uses less area. Um, and so overall, the whole solution is just more efficient and cheaper. And that, be, that won't be reprogrammable? It won't be reprogrammable, yeah. Okay, interesting. So that means that we really need to do the RSA MPC properly. Otherwise, we're you know, jeopardizing all the hardware that we would build downstream from that. And you can't, I, I mean, like, it seems like, what, what is the difference between having like a re rewritable segment there that's in the hardware itself? versus a read-only one. Is there that much speed up? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the considerations, for example, is that we, you know, we, we invented this new algorithm to do modular squaring. And if you were, it's based on these lookup tables. So if you have the modulus, which is hard-coded, 
you can actually replace the lookup table, which is usually implemented with memory. Um, Got it. With just wires. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I got it. And and if it's and you would have to basically create like almost like a how how big is this table? So to give you an order of magnitude, um, a two thousand bit modular multiplier using this stuff is about sixty four million transistors, and that's with the hard coded modulus. If got we were it. not hard coded, we'd potentially be talking hundreds of millions of transistors which starts to become a, a relatively beefy thing. But the, the other thing to consider is that we want decentralization of people running these VDF evaluators. So the security of the, the things that we're building very often require only one single person in the world to be running the VDF hardware. And so if you want to guarantee with high probability that there's at least one such person, um, you want you know, to give away the hardware to these people, but you also want the cost of running the hardware to be low, right? If you have, you know, a huge power consumption, that's, that's going to lead to, you know, a high electricity bill at the end of the month, and people might just decide to unplug um, the hardware. Or if it uses too much power, then, you know, it might produce a lot of heat, and then you might need fans, and that's going to produce a lot of noise, which is going to make, you know, maybe your partner unhappy, and then that will make you unplug uh, the machine as well. So having low power consumption is is an important design consideration. Are you guys imagining that the generators are going to run on like a USB dongle or something like that? Like folks are going to like plug them in? Because I think one of the goals for Ethereum 2.0 is that it runs on um, pretty low powered hardware. Right. So the the validators in Ethereum 2.0 and the VDF evaluators are actually completely distinct groups of, of people. You can be a validator without being an evaluator, and you can be an evaluator without being a, a validator. Got it. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're right that even for the evaluators, we we want them to be running reasonable hardware. And the, the kind of the form factor that we have in mind is like a little box, like a Mac Mini. And you plug it in a wall and you just forget about it. Um, but you're right that um, if, if there are, so the reason why we're thinking of the Mac mini form factor is that we're actually thinking of having multiple randomness beacons run in parallel so that you get randomness more frequently. So you have these staggered randomness beacons and you get randomness roughly once every epoch. Um, and in order to do that, you need to have multiple chips running in parallel. So the, the USB form factor won't work. But it's possible that there's different applications where you, you don't need you know, as high security or as many random numbers, and the, the USB form factor would, would work better when you have only one or maybe two VDF evaluators on a single piece of hardware. Do you guys see... Um... So you guys are specifically using it for randomness. Do you right. guys see any other applications for VDFs in Ethereum 2.0? Yes. Um, so, I mean, one interesting application is uh, anti-front running. So when you have a, a decentralized exchange, for example, um, 
and you know the the, the order book is public, um, and and the the transactions that come in, the orders uh, are also public. Then there's a big problem because the you know the miners can essentially front run you, or even other people can try and front run you by by raising the the gas price. And so uh, one design consideration here is that you can make the order kind of be encrypted like a time lock and it would go on the blockchain encrypted in such a way that there's no information leaked. And then after a certain amount of time, anyone could decrypt the order and then you would be able to execute the order there and then according to the order it went on chain. Uh, but that, yep. that order won't be subject to, to front running. There's another design which... Um, uh, folks are also exploring, which is that ahead of time, you you run a VDF on your order, and for someone to be able to front run you, they need to have a corresponding order with at least as much work as as much sequential time that has passed that that you have spent. So it, it starts becoming extremely expensive to do the, these front running attacks because. Um, basically, you need to be running lots of VDFs in parallel for all the different possibilities um, yep. front running that you want to do, and it just becomes unfeasible to attack. Yeah, and then that, and that it becomes a proof of work <laughs> system. <laughs> right. I, I was like, when I was first kind of designing Solana, I was trying to think of a way to use the VDF itself as a like a, the civil resistant voting scheme and you always end up being back in like proof of work land. Um, right. Um, and I mean, uh, yeah, you, you could try to like, you know, there's, I think Starkware um, had an interesting design where it's kind of weighted VBS, but I don't know how much you gain as soon as you start adding some other non-physical property, like, some kind of stake waiting or anything like that, um, because you're back to proof of stake land, and then it's proof of stake, which to me is always some version of PBFT, no matter what you do. Yeah, I'm not aware of of this weighted stuff from Starkware. Um, I mean, what I do know from Starkware is that they have a really cool construction, which, I, as I see it, is kind of the long term winner for several reasons. So. Number one is that it's the only quantum secure VDF that we know of. I mean, yours is also quantum secure, but it, I'd argue it's not a VDF. It's a kind of a proto VDF. Um, it's a it's a delay function you can verify. I, actually, Dan Bonet told me I could call it a VDF, so, sure. okay. <laughs> so I have the blessing from the from the guru, right? <laughs> Sure, uh, but you know, uh, in Ethereum 2.0, we want we want the verification cost to be very small, um, and yeah, the only construction that we know of that that has this and is quantum secure is the the stock based stuff. And the other big advantage is that it it doesn't require a trusted setup. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited that they've launched the the product Vidu uh, like maybe a couple of days ago. To me, like the the hardware generation part always seemed like the biggest technical risk in this. And that's just based on my experience in hardware. And now, I mean, your experience in hardware, I think like it, it's just a lot of work. 
<laughs> right? It's not trivial. It's not trivial to even ship like a very simple circuit. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I did. De I definitely did not, you know, anticipate this this amount of work that was involved. Uh, I mean, I knew it was expensive, and I knew it took a lot of time. But it's, you know, you really need to be dedicated um, for this to be successful. And not only are we doing this moonshot with the hardware, and we have this this crazy approach where um, we're, we're looking to give hardware to people all around the world for free um, so that we distribute it widely and we have this decentralization because there's there's no financial incentive to be running this thing at least no direct financial incentive and so if if we if we want people to run it at the minimum we need to give them the hardware for free but the other big moonshot um, is this rsa mpc so the target that we have is to have 1000 participants um, so that the, you know, the, there's really no question that there's at least one of the these participants which is which is honest. But it turns out that doing MPCs at this kind of scale has has never really been done. Um, so very significant research breakthroughs were required to do this. Um, in, in addition to just cryptographic engineering breakthroughs um, to to get this this amount of scale. Uh, in, in the context of MPCs. So, so what is like the, the bottleneck in the MPC? Right. So you have different types of MPCs. Um, the, the, the powers of Tau stuff, um, which is what Zcash has done, is what I call um, asynchronous. Asynchronous meaning that anyone can contribute to the MPC at any point in time, and you don't need to know ahead of time who they are. And if for some reason they, they start making a contribution, but they, they go offline, then you, you can just move on to the next participant. And so what tends to happen is that these, these MPCs will drag on over many, many weeks, sometimes months, to get the required number of, of participants. Um, in, in contrast, the RSA MPC is what is called synchronous, meaning that you need everyone to be online at the same point in time. Um, and if any one of these participants goes offline, then you kind of need to identify that they've gone offline, kick them out, and restart uh, with those who didn't go offline. And so what that means in, in, in practice is that you can't have the MPC last very long <laughs> because you know if it lasts, let's say, a whole hour, then the probability that at least one person will go offline during this. The hour is actually pretty big. Um, so we've been working to squeeze it down to a small, smaller duration as possible. And um, does, does every participant need to verify everyone else's work? So like that, that's kind of the, because to me, like having a thousand people submit something in an hour seems fairly trivial, right? Like what, Yeah. like if you had, if you had like a single writable, you know, chunk of memory somewhere in the world, like on Ethereum or on Solana, if you need, if you need it to be really cheap, right? Like you can just have people dump, read and dump whatever memory they need, and that could happen like fairly quickly. So, like, where where does the bottleneck start to kind of aggregate? Yeah. So, in in many MPC designs, you kind of need every participant to talk to every participant, every other participant. I mean. 
so you kind of have this this log n sorry this uh, n squared blow up. So if you have a thousand parties, you're going to have on the order of a million messages which are communicated, and it starts becoming extremely expensive. How big are the messages? I mean, it depends on the MPC, but for us specifically, we're talking about 200 megabytes, 100 megabyte upstream, 100 megabyte downstream. The, the the big optimization that we made, so you know, 100 megabytes would be too much if we had to communicate with every single party because that would, you know, if you have a thousand parties, that would be a, a hundred gigabytes. But um, one of the optimizations that we made it was basically to make use of a, a, a untrusted coordinator. So it's a coordinator which has a very big machine and, and, and lots of bandwidth. Uh, and it could be run by anybody, for example, someone from the VDF Alliance. And the, the cool thing is that they act as a coordinator in, in, in bridging the various participants, but you don't have to trust them uh, for the security of your RSA uh, modulus. And, and that means that basically every participant only needs to, to communicate with the coordinator, which drastically reduces the, the amount of, of communication that's going on. But even with the coordinator, the bottleneck is, is, is still, you know, to a very large extent, the, the, the communication cost. And one of the reasons is because you operate in rounds. So we have these, these 12 rounds of communication. And in order to start the next round, you need everyone from the previous round to have sent their message. So if you have even one participant that has a, a, a slow internet connection, they can just force everyone else to be waiting for them in order to complete the current round and move on to the next round. Got it. At 100 megabytes, I can see that being a real issue. Like the, that, that starts getting into the, the realm of like there's a non zero possibility of like one in a hundred failure. Um, right. is, is, is the asynchronous approach the, the, the Tower of Tau? Why does that take so long? Is like if yeah. it is asynchronous, like what, what is the bottleneck there? So the bottleneck there is that. The, basically, the, 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 the size of your powers of tau will be linear with the, the, size of the, the maximum size of the circuit that you want to support. So this is in the context of zero-knowledge proofs. So you have these statements that you encode as circuits you know, with addition gates and multiplication gates. And the more gates that you have, the bigger your circuit and the bigger the powers of tau. And, you know... People are starting to, to build circuits with, with millions of gates, if not tens or hundreds of millions of gates. And for every gate, you have one element in the powers of tower. So what you need to do is you basically need to download these millions and millions of elements, do computation on each of these elements, and then re-upload them back up. And so it can easily take hours, if not days, uh, for for a single participant to, 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 do, um, to do the work uh, you know, required to, to, to count as, as one participant in this MPC. So you know, just to give you an order of magnitude, um, Aztec, which is um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing zero, uh, zero knowledge on top of Ethereum. And they did the ceremony, which lasted uh, one month. And they got 170, something like 170 participants. You know, we're we're hoping to do a ceremony with a thousand participants, 
which will last only 20 minutes. So it's kind of very different flavor of MPC. Got it. That's a really interesting problem. I mean, like, I think the whole purpose of the space is to kind of build this trust minimization, both in terms of censorship resistance, but also in, in the cryptography side. It's really cool how these things intersect because, you know, like, I, I think the, the crux of decentralization is we can take so many untrusted parties that when they all have to coordinate the likelihood of the entire set being corrupt in such a way that it can impact the users, it becomes like infinitesimally small, right? And that's interesting that that's also a problem for just building these cryptographic tools. A whole part, right? It, it's, it, it is foundational in the sense that we're trying to leverage like this massive human computation that is so large that it's very likely that it was run in such a way that is, is, isn't corrupted. Um, but it's pretty hard to do that. Uh, like there, there, we don't have a mathematical definition for this, right? There isn't like some um, set of numbers that we are guaranteed have no factors, but are semi-prime, right? <laughs> have no known factors that are semi-prime. So actually it turns out that there is a way to, to generate these, um, these semi-primes uh, trustlessly. And the way that you do it is that you pick at random a very, very large number. And you, you can pick it in such a way that the probability that there's at least two large primes is extremely high. The problem with this approach, which is completely trustless, um, is that you know, the, the random number that you have to pick is too big to be practical. Um, how, how, how big is it? I will have to check my notes, but something like hundreds of thousands of, of bits. I mean, the, we, we did do some research where it turns out that instead of picking one very big number, you can pick, let's say, 10 smaller ones, and it's a net positive from a probability theory standpoint. But e even then, it was just, it was just too expensive. Um, because, I mean, one, one thing to consider is that these, these low latency um, modular multipliers, the, the, the size of the circuit, meaning the, the number of transistors that you have, grows quadratically with the, the bit length. So, yeah. um, you know, you really want to make sure that your, your, your bit length uh, re remains reasonable. But yeah, you make a really good point about you know, the, the assumptions that we make in the blockchain space. We make cryptographic assumptions, but we also make kind of ceremonial assumptions. And in, in many ways, they, 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 they share similarity. You know, in order to believe in them, you need to have some amount of faith. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it becomes almost a religious kind of uh, topic. Um, and you're like, some people argue very strongly that, you know, we should we should never be doing these 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 trusted setups, um, and instead be relying on cryptographic assumptions. But you know, I, I think it's very difficult to to compare the the, the tail risk um, of, of of these things. Like you could you could easily envision, for example, a cryptographic assumption where if you were to put you know an army of fifty really smart PhDs stuck in some basement of the NSA headquarters would be able to make very good 
you know, cryptanalytic progress to, 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 to break the assumption. Um, and uh, so like my intuition, and I don't have any proof for this, but I think these problems are so hard for a reason. And it's because I think it's impossible. I think there's some foundational limits to, to like creating a, a source of truth that's infallible, that's provable. Like I, it's just my intuitions, like based on like just my experience with math and computer science, there's like certain like boundary conditions of what we can do. And I don't think it's going to be possible for us to construct a totally trustless setup. Like the, the one that, that you described that uses an extremely large number is only trustless because of the probability that that number is random, right? Like if it's if it's using a true random oracle, but there's no guarantee I'm guessing that uh, an attacker could manufacture a random number large enough that you would think is random, but is actually has some flaw in it. Right, so there's this seed problem where... Yep. Yeah. I don't think we will have... Uh, I, I'm betting that if there's people claiming that there's completely trustless assumptions that I, I think there's going to be flaws in those setups <laughs> discovered later by very smart engineers at NSA. Yeah. I mean, what you want to try and do is remove as many of the assumptions. And one of the things that you that has been done in, in practice is to try and, and replace cryptographic assumptions uh, with information theoretic assumptions. So information theory is just like pure maths and statistics. So there's there's no faith required there. Um, and if you look at um, stocks, for example, that's 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 a very good example where, like, the bulk of the of the heavy lifting is just information theory, and then you need to make essentially a couple of assumptions um, that are more faith based. The first one being that you have some sort of hash function which behaves like a random oracle, or you know, is is collision resistant even, um, and then the the other one being that this heuristic, which is called the, the Fiat-Shamir heuristic, can be applied. And, and here is that, that, that your hash function is a, is a ran, behaves like a random oracle. But you know, as I said, we, in, in the world of applied cryptography, we, we make these assumptions all the time. That's like almost the, the minimum assumption that, that you need to, to, to minimum viable in order to build something that, that's useful. And we have constructions today that only rely on these really minimal assumptions. So the, the future is bright. I guess we just need more, more research and, and development to, to make these things you know, more practical, more efficient, et cetera. Cool. Usually there's a, like a, a trade-off between the cryptographic stuff, which is very algebraic, and you can take these, these, these shortcuts because you have algebraic structure uh, relative to the information theory side of things where... Um, th there's no sh there's no structure, so you can't take shortcuts, uh, but you're making fewer assumptions at the at the at the cost of uh, you know more more overhead, you know maybe in terms of verification time or proof size and things like that. Cool. Well, I mean, like the I, I think this uh, this was an awesome conversation, and super excited you're able to join, and I'm like been following your progress, and from our perspective. When we have this hardware, we'd love to to switch to something more efficient than our construction. I'm like really excited you guys are working on this. Um, 
And as always, awesome to talk to you. Thanks for like being on here and like giving me the download on everything that you're doing. Like a huge part of the show is just me talking to folks like you and just learning from them, <laughs> seeing what progress they're making. It sounds like you guys are uh, making a ton of headway. Yeah, I mean, we still have some big, you know, big problems to to overcome, especially around the RSA MPT. But if we can get through that, then I'm I'm pretty optimistic. Cool. Do you need this to kickstart the beacon chain? No. So um, we will launch with Randau only to start with. Got it. And okay. then we'll do this upgrade later on. Cool. What's the right way to do it? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, take care. Cool. Take care, Anatoly. See ya.